Well, if you're not there, I invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 2 as we close out the chapter this morning. We'll pick up in verse 41. Acts 2, verse 41. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were dividing them up with all as anyone might have need and daily devoting themselves with one accord in the temple. And breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. Lord, we ask as we now come to this word which is pure and perfect, it is our bread, it is our food, it is our meat and drink. Lord, you have spoken and you have spoken for the good of your people and so we ask now that you would show us wonderful things from your law, that you would make us wise and careful about our way of living. Lord, that you might manifest in us your very likeness through the application of these things and we ask this all for your glory in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we began asking the question, what makes a church? We mentioned that this is something that maybe a lot of places we don't, we don't even think about that question because we've all gone to church, we've all attended church, we all know what church is about. This text lays out for us the marks really of a faithful church, what a good church is a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We noted last week, beginning in verse 41, that this church, any church, any true church, begins with a genuinely converted community. The church, as we're learning in Adventure Club this week, you young people who are still in here and part of Adventure Club, you know this. What is the church? The church is made up of Christians. It's not a place that people attend. It's a group of people who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus who then gather together to share the Christian life together. The church is a converted community. There are a lot of non-believers who attend local churches. We're thankful for that. We want people to be under the word of God and around the people of God. There are undoubtedly in any church, those who are truly saved and those who are deceived about the lack of their salvation. There are those who are religious and sit in pews and yet are condemned still because they've never repented and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is only those who are truly converted who are part of Christ's church. And this day, there were 3,000 added to the church We saw that, and they were added, verse 47 says, by God. 
So this was the purest church that had ever existed. This is the, the birth of the church. This is the church in its purity. There was no, nobody deceived here. There was nobody who was lost and professing Christ. All of these were genuine believers, and they comprised the church. They were genuinely converted. But beyond that, they were a deeply committed community. Not only were they saved, they were sanctified, and they were living out the very faith that they professed. Uh, look at verse 42. We noted these words, they were continually devoting themselves to. That is to say that not only did they profess faith in Christ, but they continued in that faith, and they were continually devoting themselves to a number of things. And we looked at that word, proskartereo. It, it means to have strength or to remain steadfast. These people were in, intensely holding fast to a number of things. They were persistently obstinate. They were tenaciously clinging to the church and to a number of things in the practice as the church. We all understand this, right? That we are devoted to the things that we love. One could put it this way, that where these people were once in love and devoted to other things, now they were in the love with the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore they were in love with the church. They were devoted to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I can't emphasize this enough. They were not committed to a place, to an address, to a building, or even to a service. They were committed to the people of God. This was not some place they attended, but something they were part of. And they were all in. They were sold out. They were given to the life of the church. The church was a high priority to them. The people of God were their people. Because the people of God are Christ's people. Jesus is their Lord and Savior. And what is important to Jesus is important to his people. And so the Lord is continually devoted to his people, and that kind of devotion is reflected in the people of God who also love their brothers and sisters in Christ. And last week, we began to look at six critical commitments of faithful churches. And last time, we spent our time developing two of them, and I want to briefly touch on those again this morning, and then I want to press on to the, the other four. And so the question we're asking is, what makes a faithful church, or what makes a faithful church member? You could look at it that way. We can stand in front of the mirror and say, am I like this? Are these values my values? And that first commitment critical commitment we find in the early churches. They had a steadfast devotion to Scripture. Verse 42, they were continually, steadfastly devoted to the apostles' teaching. They gathered regularly to hear the exposition of biblical doctrine. They were devoted to the Word of God. Whatever else church is, it begins right here. A life submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ, 
a life that is born of hearing the word and that word taking root in the life by the Holy Spirit so as to produce repentance and faith that then results in a devotion to the word of God. We love the truth of the word of God. It's not stated in the text, but I believe this church was called Jerusalem Bible Church. They loved the exposition of scripture. They were devoted to preaching. They were drawn to doctrine. They delighted in it. The preaching and teaching of God's word is absolutely foundational to everything that the church is. There is no such thing as a Bible-less Christianity. They had an insatiable desire for the word, and so they were tenaciously devoted to it. There is a second commandment of a faithful church and of a faithful church member, and that is to fellowship. That is to fellowship. They're devoted to Scripture and devoted to fellowship. Again, verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. This is a very specific thing, and we took a long time last week to, to sort of play this out, and I want to take a little more time to look at how it's developed in the text Church, beloved, is not about buildings or pipe organs or, or orders of worship or any of that kind of thing. It's not a place you go, but a people to whom you are committed. It's relationships among people who share a common life in Christ. And there is this word that you've heard if you've hung around church at all, this word koinonia, that Greek word that's translated here, fellowship, it it really means a sharing in common or a common mutual partnership. It speaks to the idea of a, a common oneness, a unity of heart and mind, a singleness of purpose, a resolve, really, that we have corporately to pursue Christ together and the Christian life together. The sister in Christ wanted me to emphasize this, and she's right, and I should. And that is to say this, that Christian fellowship is utterly unique. It is born not of some loose association of a bunch of people who compromise to come together so that we can get something. No, this is an organism, not an organization. This is a living thing that is born of the Holy Spirit wherein the members share a common life together. And that makes all the difference. There was a movement some years ago by unbelieving people in large cities who observed the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and they said to themselves, you know, that's beautiful. Those people have belonging. They have purpose. They love each other. They care about each other. They're tight-knit. And these unbelievers began trying to capture what the trying to capture what the, what the church had. And so they would gather. They'd even gather on Sunday mornings. 
And I remember, I'm not making this up, this was all in the article. They, they would do things where, where everybody would bring something to do together as a group. So they would, they would corporately do the hokey pokey. And then following the hokey pokey, somebody would read a poem from Robert Frost. And then somebody else of a more depressed state would quote something from Nietzsche. And, and, and so they would, they would try to, 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 to hang in there together week by week. And what they found time after time after time is what? It just fell apart because you had, you had no life, no commonality. It was just a group of self-centered people coming to an organization hoping to derive what can only be derived by believers who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who share a common love for the truth and a common love for Christ and a common love for one another and a common purpose in, in seeing the kingdom of God realized through the preaching of the gospel. I mean, what we have here is so unique that the unbeliever knows nothing of it. And if you've been hanging around church for a while, I state that because you'll have a tendency, familiarity breeds contempt, and you just forget. You forget what it is to be out there, alone, frustrated, discontented. You see, it all begins with this common life. The Word of God tells us that we have been made to drink of one spirit, and we have been baptized, that is immersed into or unified with the body of Christ. We've been brought into union with this body that is, that is Christ's body. And these believers in the first century were enthusiastically devoted to fellowship. They were devoted to this expression of this oneness, this life they had together. They were devoted first to Jesus and then to one another and to living out the fullness of the Christian experience. Now, last week, I gave you a simple definition of fellowship, which was this. It is participation in the life of God and then participation in the works of God. It is God's life in us individually and corporately and out of us individually and corporately. And we see that revealed beginning in verse 43. And this is picking up where we ended last week. Look at verse 43. And fear came upon every soul. There was this pervasive sense of fear. Maybe your translation says awe. And that's the idea. There, there, there is a sense of reverence of the fear of the Lord, knowing that God is in your midst. It is an awesome thing to see God in your midst working. And God was in this. I mean, if nothing else, they went from a church of 120 in the morning to a church of 3,120 by afternoon. There was something going on here that was, that was beyond them. They were astonished, astonished like the Israelites who saw the Red Sea parted with dry ground for them to pass through, astonished in the way that an axe head might float or the dead might be raised. This was something to be shocked about. 
They were in awe. They had a fear among them that God was in their midst and he was doing something. This was not normal. And so these people, they're full of gladness. They're gurgling and bubbling forth joy. But there was no flippancy among them. There was none of that sort of frothy, super religious superficiality. There was no laxity and casualness about their attitudes whatsoever. God was in their midst, and they did not treat him casually. They did not have disregard for his holiness. No, there was a sense of fear and reverence and awe in their worship. And the text goes on to say that many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. These, as we talked about in messages past, were the confirming signs, those signs of an apostle that set them apart as God's spokesman, set the gospel apart as having come from God. God was in this thing, and it was very plain to all who were paying attention. Then we come to verse 44, and it says, And all those who had believed were together. Of course they were. Where else would they be? Where else would they be? They loved each other, and they loved being together. They loved gathering throughout the week as as often as they are able, which is why, again, beloved, we could talk about all the particular expressions that were coming in, in light of God's great work in their midst, but one of the things I want to rest with us and with you personally and individually is, is this kind of thing going on in my heart? Do I have a passion for the people of God? Do I love the people of God? You see, love for the brethren is something that is supernaturally wrought in the life of every single one of Christ's children. Jesus loves his people, and therefore we love his people too. We have the mind of Christ, yes, and we also have the heart of Christ. What matters most to Jesus? The church. What matters most to you? To me. You see, beloved, loving your brother is Christianity 101. In fact, I think I can safely say that if, if uh, with biblical warrant, that if you do not have an obvious heart to serve and to sacrifice for your brother in Christ, it is doubtful that you're in the family. And you say, gee, Dave, that's really strong. That's really overstated. I wonder. Turn with me to the book of 1 John. John writes in chapter 5 and verse 13 that the reason he is writing this epistle to Christians is for the express reason that we might know that we have eternal life. Well, how do you know if you have eternal life? Well, John lists a number of things that ought to be evident in the life of anyone who is a true believer in Jesus Christ. But 
one of the most fundamental tests of whether or not you're in Christ, whether or not you have genuine faith, is, is your attitude and your love for your brother and sister in Christ. In fact, it's the most stated. He just states it over and over and over again in this book. Look at 1 John chapter 2, and we're just going to move quickly. Verse 5. Whoever keeps his word, truly in him, the love of God has been perfected. And by this we know that we're in him. In other words, here's another test. Well, what is it? The one who says he abides in him ought also to walk in the same manner in which he walked. That's what I just said to you a minute ago. If you're a Christian, your heart is dominated by the things that dominates Jesus' heart. You're like him. You think like him. You love the things he loves. You pursue the things he pursues. Now look at verse 10. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. That is to say, the one who loves his brother is in the light, like Jesus is in the light. You're a Christian. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because darkness has blinded his eyes. Chapter 3, verse 10. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifested. There are only two types of children, God's children the devil's children. And he says it's easy to tell them apart. How do you know? Well, he says, everyone who does not do righteousness is not of God, as well as the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not like Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. You see, this is really simple and plainly put. Verse 14 Chapter 3, we know that we passed out of death into life. How? Because we love the brothers. The one who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we have known love, that Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. We'll see this in a moment, but whoever has the world's good goods and sees his brother in need but closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or tongue. It's not about what you say. But in deed and truth, that's the kind of thing that brings assurance before God and, and an assurance of salvation as you see the, the love of Christ being worked out in your life towards his people. Chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God. That's how you know. And knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And by this, the love of God was manifested in us that God sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if just reason with me for a minute. If God so loved you, then you ought to love one another. That's what he's saying. 
Verse 20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This is the commandment that we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Chapter 5, verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the one who gives new birth loves also the one who has been born of him. If you love God as your father, you will love other Christians as your spiritual siblings. Now, I could just hang up the phone right there, right? That's not sort of clear. That's not Dave, you're proof texting. That's Dave. That is so obvious and so blatantly stated in the book of 1 John, as well as other places in Scripture, that I can come to no other conclusion than, but that the love of God should be shed abroad in my heart that I am passionately committed to serving and sacrificing on behalf of Christ's people. Do you see what folly it is to think that you can be a believer and not be attached to a local assembly of Christians is just ludicrous. One of the surest signs of a healthy church is that the members of that church are often found together. Remember, that's the point we were making here. It's just this simple point. They were together. They liked each other. It goes on. Look at the end of verse 44. Not only did they gather together, but they had all things in common. Oh, now this is, this is getting right into our garage. And I, I mean that literally, don't I? They had all things in common, and they, were, and they began selling their property and their possessions and were dividing them up with all as anyone might have need. Beloved, these people had been converted. They had been radically, radically changed. They had a radical reorientation of their priorities. The enjoyment of wealth was no longer their pursuit in life. Their financial security was not fundamentally what they were seeking during their working years. They were not committed to a high quality of, of retirement when they reached that age. Those were not the things that were driving these people any longer. And that's an amazing statement, beloved, because the attainment and preservation of wealth is a significant and might be the significant pursuit for the world. And Jesus says all these things the world eagerly seeks. But these people were seeking first the kingdom of God. You know this. If you have children, you know this, whether you're acquainted with yourself or not. You know it out of their mouth. When they come out of the womb, when you came out of the womb, there were two words in your heart and mouth that were waiting to get out till you had enough skill of tongue to actually speak them. The first word was no, demonstrating the rebellion bound up in the heart of every sinner. The second word was mine. 
demonstrating the selfishness bound up in the heart of every fallen human being. Jesus said you cannot serve two masters. And these people had made a 180. They turned from serving their money and their self to the living God and to the love of his people. And every need that existed in the body, and you can underline that word need, that's fine. We're not talking about buying somebody a nicer car. We're talking about people who are genuinely in need, having those needs sacrificially met by brothers and sisters in Christ. There's not even a hint of communism in this. This is simply fellowship and faith in action. Our faith reaches deep into our hearts and if necessary, deep into our pocketbooks because we do not serve money, but God. We do not love money, but God's people and the gospel. Nobody in this bunch was clinging to the things of the world. The lust of the eyes had given way to the love of the heart. And if someone was in need, people divested themselves of their money. They sold their material goods to meet that need. Generosity, beloved, is one of the sure marks. It is a birthmark of the people of God. Christians are not stingy people, or they should not be. And the reason for that is obvious because we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though being rich, yet for our sake he became poor that we through his poverty might become rich. Freely, freely it has been given to us and therefore how can we live in a way that that is not free and open-handed? We are not those who love in word and tongue But in deed and truth, and beloved, the question should confront us as we encounter this text. Let it indict you if you're selfish. Let it indict you if you've never sold something or given something or sacrificed something for the needs of other people. Don't brush it off as as though, well, you know, yeah, they were really poor people in Jerusalem, and they were. Our culture is very different. We are not characterized by the kind of material need that that people in this first century were. I understand that. But my friend, there is some kind of expression of this, whether in this church or to a needy church worldwide. Ministry costs money. And I don't have any trouble saying that because I'm not trying to manipulate anything out of you. What I'm trying to do is, is stir what God has put in you, which is freely it's been given to you. Freely, I have given you the power to make wealth. Why? So that you might be blessed. Yes, but it's not period, end of sentence. So that you might be blessed and give a blessing to others who are in need. Have you ever given anything to people who are in need? Do you know your brothers and sisters in Christ well enough to know what their needs might be? Have you stood before the Lord and said, Lord, if you ask it of me, if you put that need before me and I can meet it, I'll meet it. I'm determined by your grace. Money is a stewardship, isn't it? It's given to you to manage on God's behalf. 
And that's all these people were doing. Well, there's another expression of their fellowship. This is so good. Verse 46. And daily they were devoting themselves with one accord. There's this, that word for devotion again. This, this tenacity in union. I mean, this is everybody. This wasn't a few stragglers gathered. No, they were, they were coming in one accord. They were gathered in the temple, which is really cool to think about, that this place where, where, where they had been worshiping for years, now all of a sudden the clarity of the cross and the gospel and the Messiah had come into plain view, and now they're still engaged in this very Jewish expression of worship, going to the temple, and yet not participating any longer in the sacrifices, but worshiping Christ there the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And they were breaking bread from house to house, and they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. They were undoubtedly at the temple testifying to this Messiah, to his cross work, showing people that Jesus fulfilled all that the Older Testament talked about. And then they would go as the day wore on, and they would get hungry, and they would go to individuals' homes in smaller groups, back to their neighborhoods, and they would share meals together, which is always a joy, isn't it? But this language here is beautiful. It says they were full of gladness. The word means exuberant joy. They could not contain their happiness to be with each other. It was deep, and it was rich, and it was almost inexpressible. And it says they were doing this not only with gladness, with this exuberant joy, but with sincerity of heart. And this word, super intriguing, the word sincerity literally means without rocks. There there was no stony ground in their relationships. There were no hard places. There was nothing to trip up over. All those things that that we get encumbered by, those hindrances in relationship, like envy, jealousy, selfishness of heart, anger, hatred. You remember when Paul characterizes the world as those who are hateful, hating one another? Yeah, but they lo- it looks like everything's nice. It looks like it's all going along well. Yeah, till somebody, till the bill arrives at the table, right? Well, who's going to pay? And maybe somebody even ponies up and throws their card on the table and they pay for it. But then on the ride home with the wife, they're grumbling, saying, yeah, that guy never contributes. Beloved, is it that way among us? I heard a testimony yesterday from a woman who was at the prayer retreat who was sitting back and just taking it all in and relishing at the reality that here were the women of God seated together without stones in their relationship. They were just at peace. There was was joy and delight in their midst. No relational snags. I can only imagine... How bright this city set on a hill was shining as they gathered together in the city of Jerusalem. There was something different about these people, and the grace of God looked good on them. And people were noticing, and their fellowship was sweet. 
That's all still by way of review. We are now coming to the third, the third commitment of a faithful church. They were committed to the apostles' teaching, committed to the fellowship. Thirdly, they were committed to ordinances. Now that sounds dry and academic. I know. What are the ordinances? Well, Christ gave two ordinances to his church. The first is baptism. And these things were given to his church to make the gospel visible, our life in Christ more tangible. They portrayed the truth of the Christian faith in something that could be seen and touched and experienced. The first is baptism, and that is a very outward public declaration of one's repentance and faith in Christ. It portrays spiritually our death and burial with Christ and then being raised to newness of life. We'll have a baptism next week. Mark your calendar. The second is the Lord's Supper. That regular commemoration of the Lord's sacrifice on the cross, the bread and the juice, portraying his body and blood shed for the remission of sins. Just as Passover for these Jews commemorated Israel's deliverance from slavery in Egypt, so the Lord's Supper now takes the place of that and it points ultimately to the deliverance of God's people from slavery to sin and death. And the early church was devoted to both. Baptism, we saw that, didn't we, in verse 41 and here in verse 42 to the Lord's Supper. Look at it, verse 42, they were continually, the end of it, devoting themselves to the breaking of bread. Now we find in this text the church breaking bread together both in verse 42 and in verse 46. But there's a unique construction here in verse 42 where it says literally they were devoting themselves to the breaking of the bread. And there's some discussion as to whether Luke is reporting that the church simply ate their meals together in one another's homes or whether this refers to a celebration of the Lord's Supper. And I think here... The answer is both. I think you can have your meal and communion too, all right? They were devoted to sharing regular meals together, what they called love feasts or agape feasts. But in the midst of that meal and after that meal, patterned after the Passover meal, they would share in the cup and the bread. They would commemorate the Lord's death. It was patterned after the Last Supper. You'll remember Jesus with his disciples in the upper room shared a Passover meal together and it was concluded by the Lord breaking bread and and giving the cup to his disciples. Jude mentions one of these love feasts in the 12th verse. You'll recall in Corinth that the people were gathering together and Paul is rebuking them because they get together for these feasts and the wealthy would get in line first, and they would gluttonously eat to their own pleasure, and then they would drink to the extent of being drunk. And the poor were oppressed and put at the end of the line, and the Lord judged them severely for their abuse of the Lord's table. It's not that they were filling up on communion crackers. You with me? So in the early church, there was a devotion, and this is really the point, to the regular observance of the Lord's Supper. It was a very, very important focal point of their faith. 
it was a very direct commandment, wasn't it, from Christ? Do this in remembrance of me. And that's precisely what they did. They were devoted to it. That's the point. Now, how often did they do it? Well, it sounds like in this text they were doing it daily. They were doing it at every meal. But the fact is, Scripture doesn't tell us precisely how often the church ought to celebrate this. Some churches have, in, in the pattern that they see in the early church, enjoyed the Lord's table every week. We used to do that here at the inception of this church. Somewhere along the way, we shifted to a monthly enjoyment of the Lord's Supper. And that was for a number of reasons, which I could share with you at another time if you're interested. Some Reformed churches celebrated even less, sometimes even just quarterly. And it's not because they neglect the table out of, out of despising the table. They, they just do it because it's in the tradition of the Reformed Church, which was reactionary to the Catholic Church and the Mass and the Eucharist. They, they wanted to separate from all of that confusion. And so they celebrate it less frequently and with greater clarity, perhaps, in explaining it time by time so that people are not misunderstanding what's happening in the Lord's Supper. But for our purposes, we just need to understand the Scripture doesn't specify how often. In fact, when Paul reiterated the Lord's words on that night in the upper room, he wrote these things, this, is the cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you do it, as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's one other thing I want to point out while we're on this point about the Lord's Supper. And that is that never will you see it in Scripture as a private act. You will never just see some family gathering together in their living room. You're not going to see some individual who kind of fell out of out of love with the church and therefore he just sits and watches something on TV and then takes communion by himself. Never. It is a very public confession of the Lord's death. I used to let people take communion when, when they would get married. I don't do that anymore. And it's on account of this conviction that it's wrong in the midst of a wedding ceremony for two individuals up front to take communion while the rest sit and observe. I think if that sort of thing is going to happen, at least the whole congregation ought to be served in remembrance of Christ. This is something that is an expression of our corporate togetherness, our unity, our common life in Christ. And it is a bold expression of our Savior's death, resurrection, and return. I'm not going to take the time, but you could look these verses up because we're short on time. But if you look at 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 and 17, and then 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 22, and then again verse 33, you will see Paul dealing with the Corinthian abuse of the Lord's table, and you will see that the whole argument he is making is utterly opposed to individualism. He wanted them to come together, 
He wanted them to do it reverently. He wanted them to do it with consideration for one another. He wanted them to remember their common participation in Christ. He wanted them to rejoice together in the great salvation that he had provided for his people. And they needed to to stop abusing the poor as though somehow Jesus is more about the rich. They needed to stop treating the table as a means to drunkenness and a celebration of all that is sinful and demonic. Beloved, can I ask you this question? I've been asking you questions all the way along, but do you love the Lord's Supper? Is it a priority in your life, or do you just seem to bump into it on the first Sunday of the month here at church, if you happen to make it to church on the first Sunday? Is this something you are devoted to, that we are devoted to? Should we go back to weekly? You can try and persuade me. But we're not going to quarterly, sorry. The early church was devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and fourthly, to the prayers or to prayer. They, are con- they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. If you were to climb up a ladder and peer into the upper room, what you would see time and time again among the early church was that they were a praying people. They were devoted to corporate prayer. And again, I wish I had the time or that we did this morning to to go and see this unveiled in the book of Acts. But we'll, we'll look at these verses another time. Let me just tell you that it goes chapter by chapter, chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, and it just keeps on rolling this reference to prayer. Of the 84 times the verb pray appears in the New Testament, 34 of them, almost half of them, are in Luke's writings, either the book of Luke or the book of Acts. For Luke, the Christian community is a praying community. For Jesus, the Christian community is a praying community. Jesus said, my house should be called a house of what? Right. And you go, wait, he was talking about the temple. Beloved, you are the temple of God. And we are a people of prayer if we're faithful at all. Oh, how we get on with the fits and starts in prayer. We just are not to a point yet, I think corporately at least, where there are enough of us who are saying, I'm dedicated, I'm committed, I am, I am in and I will not depart by the grace of God ever from pursuing a life of prayer individually and among the people of God. I can see it in the text of Scripture. I can see that it's the will of God for my life. You go, it's not that plain. Yes, it's that plain. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, for this is the will of God for you all. It's that simple. If you are out of prayer, if you neglect corporate prayer, if you have no heart for that sort of thing, beloved, you're in sin, and I tell you that not to, not to, not to point a finger, but to plead with you. At what point will you be obedient to this? 
praying at every touch and turn of life. Jesus said man ought always to pray and not lose heart. Prayer should be so conspicuously a part of this congregation that it, that it is as broadly known in your reputation. You do have a reputation. Do you know that in this community? I hear it all the time. Where do you pastor? I pastor right there on the corner of Sugar Pine and, 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 and Placer Hills Road. Oh, I thought those were apartment buildings. No, they're a church. What church is it? Oh, it's Foothill Christian Fellowship. I've heard about you. Well, you have. And I started to brace myself, right? <laughs> what have you heard? That you guys really love the word of God. Your sermons are long and your people are devoted to the truth. <laughs> and to all of that, I say amen. I'm not even apologetic. I say that's right. Can I tell you, I am just as eager at the bottom of my heart to hear somebody say, I've heard about you. I've heard about you. Well, what have you heard? You guys are devoted to the word of God and you're devoted to the prayers. Your people are a praying people. They're the weirdest people I've met. I, I bump into them at the local coffee shop and I, I, I tell them about something going on in my life. Next thing I know, the guy throws his arm around me and he's praying publicly for me. Yeah. Yeah, you bet we are because we are utterly dependent upon the God whom we serve. We are nothing apart from him. We have no strength, no power. We take everything to God in prayer. We are a people who pray at the beginning of things, and we're a people who pray at the end. We are a people who pray about the big things of life, and we pray about the microscopic things of life. We pray to express our praises. We pray to convey our needs. We pray with those who rejoice, and we pray with those who mourn. We pray for things physical. We pray for things spiritual. We pray about things in our church. We pray about things in others' churches. We pray for the lost. We pray for one another. We pray about the here and now. We pray about the coming of Christ. We pray about everything. And everyone. And we pray personally and we pray corporately. Beloved, yet another question. Are you devoted? Are you devoted continually to prayer? Do you know the word used in 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, Colossians 4 to devote yourselves to prayer. Again, it's a commandment. This isn't just something we go, hey, this was the practice of the early church. If you think you fit into that kind of thing, well, do it. No, this is a commandment of Scripture, Colossians 4 to devote yourselves to prayer. You know that word for devote is the same word in our text that means cling tenaciously to. Ephesians 6.18, praying at all times with all prayer and petition in the spirit and to this end being on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. That's a lot of alls. 
we will take the time to look at Romans 12. Just flip forward a book. I want you to see that these things are not just Luke's pet peeve. But these are the things which Christ wants from his people. Romans 12 and verse, uh, we'll, we'll start in verse 9. He's just talked about utilizing your spiritual gifts with fervency for the good of the body of Christ. In verse 9, he says, let love be without hypocrisy. That is play acting. You're not, you're not just toying around. You really genuinely love people. By abhorring what is evil and clinging to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, but fervent in spirit. Don't be an anchor for Christ. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in affliction, being devoted to prayer, Contrib contributing to the needs of the saints and pursuing hospitality. You see the picture. It's the same picture we get in Acts. It's the exact same picture. Well, the first four commandments, or <laughs> commitments, I should say, are plainly stated. The next two are inferred from the text and I think reinforced clearly in the New Testament. There is a fifth commitment of a faithful church, and that is you are committed, we are committed, they were committed to worship. They were committed to worship. A.W. Tozer said, worship is the missing jewel of the church. Beloved, you were saved to worship. That is your primary purpose. And when I say that word worship, I know that in our culture, most of us think he's talking about singing. Well, that's one way of worshiping the Lord your God. But it is the whole of your life that is to be devoted to declaring by the way you live the excellencies of God. That is your primary purpose, really. That is why God saved you, that you might declare the excellencies of him who rescued you and who shed his blood on your behalf. Why did he save you? Ephesians 1 tells us three times, to the praise of the glory of his grace. I thought it was so I could go to heaven. It was. He loves you. He wants to be with you. He prepared heaven for you. But fundamentally, before any of that, he saved you to the praise of the glory of his grace. To worship God is to honor God. It's to adore God. And it's to do so from the heart. It is to fix a high esteem, a high value on God. And it is something that you do. You give to him. One commentator defined it this way. Worship is service that is rendered to God by a soul that loves him and extols him for who he is. Jesus put it this way. We are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and all of our strength. All that we are, all that we have, in all that we do. And this thing, beloved, should work out in your life and mine from the inside 
out. There's an inward dimension of worship. It begins in the heart. It makes its way out of the life in living out a life that is worthy of your calling, that honors God. And ultimately it goes upward to him as incense. And we see that, don't we, in this church? Inwardly, what do we see? There was an attitude of the fear of God. There was joy. There was sincerity. There was generosity of heart. There was a mutuality of love. There was a single-minded unity. There was devotion to God. All of these things are flowing out of a heart that is worshiping God. But then we see outwardly what? They worshiped him. They had a passion for the apostles' teaching, so they showed up. They shared in fellowship together, so they opened their, their houses They were taking the Lord's Supper together in remembrance, in worship of him. They were committed to corporate prayer, which is, of course, worship of our God. And upwardly, verse 47, look at it. It tells us that they were praising God. They were praising God. So everything that the church is doing here fits under the category of worship. God became the very center of their existence. He was sitting on the throne of their lives. He was their their all in all. These brothers and sisters were redeemed and their compass had turned from serving self to serving the Lord. They worshiped him and they wanted to give back all that they were to him. And sixthly, there is a sixth commitment of the local church, of a faithful church, and that is to evangelism. Look down at verse 47. It says they were praising God and having favor with all the people. Don't miss that. And the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. Now this implies evangelism, doesn't it? How was it that people were being added to their number? Did God appear to people out of the skies to declare the truth of the gospel? Or did faith come by hearing and the word of Christ? through the mouths of apostles and these early Christians. You see, this is the way this was working. They had a heart to hear the word of God. They had a heart for one another. They prayed together. They were together sharing their homes, sharing their meals, sharing their stuff, overflowing with generosity toward one another. They enjoyed the Lord's Supper together. They were rejoicing in their common salvation, worshiping God gladly and sincerely with awe and reverence. And when people saw all of that, they said, wow, I think that's what they said. I think they looked at it and just said, that is odd. Those people are really, really different. But somehow wonderfully so. You see, the grace of God in these early believers was just really evident. It was obvious And the result is that that their faith was contagious. Their expression of Christ in their togetherness, God gave them favor with people. And I think that's a really important insight because when we tend to think, don't go away from me here, hear this. When we think about evangelism, most of us groan and we go, man, I don't know about me and that guy face to face and 
I'm going to confront him about his sin. I'm going to be talking to him about the gospel of Christ. And that all sounds super intimidating. And he's going to ask questions of me that I'm not going to be able to answer. And we just kind of, we just shrink away. Beloved, don't do that. I want you to broaden your grasp of evangelism. Yes, there is the one-on-one conversation. There is you giving your testimony. There is you passing out a track. There, there are all those kinds of, 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 of witnessing going on. I think all of that was going on here too, but I, I can't get past the fact that there had to be a very, very apparent corporate witness. Have you invited people into your home? Have you ever invited another family from this church and then somebody who does not know the Lord? Why not? Have you ever invited somebody to church, to a home fellowship group? Have you ever invited somebody into your home to live with you who is in need so that they might spend some time around the the great tanning light that, that, a, that a Christian testimony is. I want them to get tan in my house. You with me? My wife's got a thing right on the, on the window that she looks at while she's doing dishes, and I'm going to forget the punchline, but it says something to the effect of your home is a, is, is a, is a missionary what? It is a mission station. You ever gone to the river and invited some unbelievers to be around your believing friends? (laughs) No way. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) These were people who loved Christ and they reflected Christ. They talked about Jesus. They proclaimed the truth. They were honest about their sin and faithful about talking about their salvation. And God gave them favor. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters in Christ, precious friends of mine, that you would be gregarious for God. That you would quit going covert. You'd quit ignoring the people around you as though, well, you're just on a mission all the time to get your tasks done. No. You have time for people. You engage people in conversation, not just waiting for them to engage you, but you take interest in them. You build friendships. You genuinely love people. You're not looking to get a score and to put a notch on your gospel belt. You are caring for the lost, and therefore you engage relationship with them, those people that God has put around you in your community. 
that you would befriend them and have them over and bring them to church and share your enthusiasm for the Lord. Beloved, that you would be gregarious for God, that you would be a lover of people. That's how the Lord was adding to their number. That you would just let your life in Christ bubble over in gladness and sincerity and hope that you would speak to the unbeliever as the unbeliever speaks to you. They're unrestrained. They drop, they drop the F-bomb in your ear. You can drop, right, the Jesus bomb in their ear. It's okay. <laughs> Tell them. Talk to them. Are you happy in Jesus? Well, when they ask you how you are. <laughs> Don't do that. I am so glad in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, my life has been hard in the last year. But in him I have everything. In him my life is complete. I've got people around me that God has saved and they are my friends and they love me through thick and thin and so they've been such a strength for me. How are you doing? And do you have a God like that? You ever been to church? We're right down the road. It's very convenient. Isn't, this isn't difficult, my friends. Can we just put a stop? Can we just say, no more? I'm not going to cower in the corners any longer. I'm not going to live for the approval of a bunch of folks out there who, who ultimately on the day of their judgment would reflect back and say, you knew the Lord and you knew the end of my life and yet you held your tongue? My friends, we just need to be out with it and delight in it. And they will look at you and they will find you, yes, in a word, weird. They will find you pleasantly peculiar. They will find you delightfully odd. They will find you sort of respectfully old-fashioned and narrow-minded. But whatever. In the end, don't you have the hope that some will hear the message of Christ through your life and through the corporate witness of this church and that the Lord will add them to our number, that the Lord will, will use your life as an aroma from life to life for those who are lost. Wouldn't that just thrill your heart? I know it would mine. Well, we need to close. I hope you're stirred by these things to a greater devotion to the church Beloved, you cannot get these things on the run. DoorDash will not deliver these things to your front door. It just does not happen that way. You're going to have to take yourself to task. You cannot aloofly attend on Sunday mornings and expect to see anything like this in your life or in our life together corporately. But I will tell you this, that as Christ and his body take their rightful place at the top of your priority list, the rest of those things will all fall into place. Your job, your responsibilities, your hobbies, all of that stuff, they'll sort themselves out. Place Christ and his people first. Here's one of my favorite quotes from Charles Spurgeon, and I threw it in here for good measure. Spurgeon writes, quote, give yourself to the church. 
You that are members of the church have not found it perfect, and I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. I have never joined a church. If I had never joined a church until I found one that was perfect, I would never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. All who have given themselves first to the Lord should as speedily as possible also give themselves to the Lord's people. How else is there to be a church on earth? If it is right for anyone to refrain from membership in the church, it's right for everyone, and then the testimony for God would be lost to the world. As I have already said, the church is faulty, but that is no excuse for your not joining it if you are the Lord's, nor indeed are your own faults to keep you back, for the church is not an institution for perfect people, but a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace, who, though they are saved, are still sinners and need all the help they can derive from the sympathy and guidance of their fellow believers. The church is the nursery for God's weak children where they are nourished and grow strong. It is the fold for Christ's sheep, and it is the home for Christ's family. End quote. Our Lord, what thanks can we give to you for your great work of salvation? From eternity past, you have set apart a people unto yourself. And Lord, we were rebellious, self-centered, selfish, sinful to the core. And yet in your love and mercy, you predestined us to adoption as sons, sending your son to shed his blood that we might have the forgiveness of sins, sending your son to live a life that fulfilled the law that we could in no way fulfill. And Lord, you have granted us the gift of repentance and faith and you have brought us to yourself, joined us, baptized us, into your body, your family. And you have given us fellowship with yourself and with one another. And Lord, our hearts are full. We're grateful. May we never demean this great reality. Lord, forgive us for any ignoble thought, casual thought we've ever had about the church. Lord, how precious the church is in your sight. How precious we are in your sight. And Lord, help us to love one another as we have been loved and all of that, that you might be put on display as the great saving and transforming life-giving God that you are. In Christ's name, amen.